All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 67 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and unfortunately, I will be riding solo again this week. Chris is not available because his softball team continues to fight for the championship. And unfortunately, my team, on the other hand, has been eliminated. So my availability has increased tenfold. And I gotta tell you guys, I am really still stewing over this loss. It's been nearly a week and I'm still feeling it. I I just hate losing. I I can't help it. I always have since I was a kid. I'll never be one of these it's-how-you-play-the-game type guys. So now I gotta sit on this loss till next spring. That's gonna be fun. Oh my god, who the hell cares? But with all that said, win, lose, or draw... Hudson Valley Horror Week must continue. It must roll on. And my God, do we have a story for you tonight. Just when you thought we were done with these grotesque, cannibalistic tales, we pull you right back in. Because tonight, folks, we are talking about none other than Oscar Beckwith, better known as the Cannibal of Austerlitz, New York. Now, you may be saying to yourself... And I can almost guarantee that you are. Where in the hell is Austerlitz, New York? Well, remember, my good people, we're still deep in the woods of Hudson Valley Horror Month. And lo and behold, we're finally making our way out of Dutchess County. That's right. This week, we're going a tad bit north up to Columbia County. And that, my friends, is where Austerlitz, New York is located. Austerlitz finds itself nestled up in the northeast corner of the picturesque Columbia County. And once again, this is a very small town. This town, as of 2010, had a population of 1,654 residents. And get this, the town has a total area of 48.8 square miles. So that landmass, coupled with a small population, you can imagine that this area is quite desolate. It is bordered by Massachusetts to the east and sits at the foothills of the beautiful Berkshire Mountains. And even though Austerlitz is quite desolate and isolated, that does not mean that it is not easily accessible. That's right, the Death Trap, known simply as the Taconic State Parkway, runs right through Austerlitz. Now, remember last week we talked about the woman in black of Rhinebeck. Just so you guys have a reference, Austerlitz is roughly 45 minutes north of Rhinebeck. So being so close to each other, it's obvious that they would share a majority of the same geographical components. So like we mentioned, you have the Berkshire Mountains to the east, and you have the Catskill Mountains to the west. And within that, especially here in Austerlitz, you have a lot of unoccupied wilderness. I mean, there's not much going on here, but for what you lack in excitement, you make up in beautiful landscape, and you can't put a price on that. Am I right, people? Now, with the aforementioned landscapes and access to waterways and mountains, this area is a perfect setting for bizarre happenings, just simply due to the fact that it provides an easy escape and various hiding locations for any local weirdo that may be lurking. Apparently, there was a lot of weird shit going on up here in the late 19th century. And this week's tale might just take the cake. As I mentioned, tonight we're going to be talking about Austerlitz's very own cannibal, Oscar Beckwith. So let me give you some info on old Beckwith here. In 1882, Oscar was roughly 72 years old. 
And from all accounts, he lived a very lonely existence. You see, Oscar lived in the woods all by his lonesome. He essentially lived in a small man-made shack that had nothing in it but a stove and a makeshift bed. So you could ask yourself, what could have driven Oscar to a lifestyle of this kind? Upon further investigation, we find out that Oscar Beckwith had a criminal record. It seems that he had served time for stealing horses. It was also noted that for his age, and remember we said he was in his early 70s, that Oscar was indeed a very strong man. And you could kind of draw that conclusion on your own just by the fact that this guy was able to survive essentially out in the wilderness by himself in this little shack, especially when we're talking about these harsh Northeast winters, right? So for all intents and purposes, <laughs> Oscar Beckwith was not your typical senior citizen. And we're going to come to find out that that may be a very drastic understatement. So, as I often say on a show, we need to go backwards to go forward. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Let's go back to 1878, to be exact, and see just how Oscar Beckwith could get himself to the point in life where he's accused of being a cannibal. Our story begins, like I said, in 1878, when Oscar Beckwith was attempting to purchase a piece of land that was rumored to be filled with silver and gold. And what he wanted to do was mine that land. But unfortunately, as we stated, Oscar was not a man of financial means. So he did not have the financial ability to purchase the land that he wanted to. So he sought out a partner and with the promise of there being gold in Nemner Hills, he found one, and that was 55-year-old Simon Vandercook. And from everything I read, the deal was constructed around the fact that Vandercook would put up a majority of the money in exchange for receiving two-thirds interest in the mine. But unfortunately, that never came to be, because it does seem that old Vandercook did somehow take control of this land. From Beckwith's account, Vanderhook screwed him out of the deal, took the land, and used some of Beckwith's money to invest in those mines. But unfortunately, there was not as much gold as there was rumored to be. So in order to make some kind of profit or living off of this land, Vanderhook begins cutting down trees and selling the lumber to local mills. So now the fact that Beckwith was cut out of this deal after investing some money in it, then finding out that there was no gold in Nemner Hills, then the cherry on top was Vandercook cutting down the trees on the land that Beckwith owns and then profiting from that. So this sent our man Beckwith into a tizzy, an absolute rage, if you will. So at first... Beckwith threatened to sue Vandercook for snubbing him on his deal. Apparently, he believed that there was some kind of contractual agreement, and I don't know if that was in written or verbal form, but if it's just in verbal form, Beckwith is shit out of luck, which he ended up being anyway because Beckwith did not even have enough money to hire a lawyer to follow through on the threat of suing Vandercook. So what really happened, we may never know, but old Vandy here walks away scot-free. That was until he made a fateful error. So on the night of January 10th, 
1882, it seems Vandercook went to visit Beckwith at his shack in the woods. And we don't know what the intention was. Maybe it was to smooth things over, or perhaps it was to raise the level of conflict. We may never know. But what we do know, that on that fateful night, Simon Vandercook was never seen nor heard from again. So you may be thinking, back then, you know, if you go missing, who the hell is going to come looking for you? Especially if you don't have a family, which we come to find out that Vandercook did not. But what Vandercook did have was a landlord. It seems that he was renting a room from a gentleman named Harrison Calkins. Now, at this point, Vandercook is missing for upwards of a week. And Harrison Calkins, the landlord, takes it upon himself to go looking for him. And apparently... Vandercook had said to Calkins that he was going down to Beckwith's place in Austerlitz to discuss their differences. So you can imagine travel back then. Yeah, it might take some time to get back. So, you know, you go missing a day or two. The alarm bells really aren't going to be rung. But uh, as time gradually went on, and I'm assuming that the landlord wanted his money for whatever rent may be due. So the landlord, Calkins, took it upon himself to pay Beckwith a visit to his shack. And it was upon this visit that all holy hell broke loose. So as Harrison Calkins, the landlord, begins to approach Beckwith's shack, and he comes across, to quote Newman from Seinfeld, a very foul and unpleasant odor. You emit a foul and unpleasant odor. Calkins said to Beckwith, and I quote here, For God's sake, what are you burning? Beckwith responded with, Nothing but some pork rinds. So Beckwith keeps Calkins at bay. He keeps him on the outside of the shack there, doesn't let him in. So obviously the intent of Calkins' visit was to find out the whereabouts of his tenant, Simon Vandercook. Upon asking these questions to Beckwith, Calkins gets very suspicious of Beckwith's answers. So Beckwith basically tells Calkins that Vandercook is taking off and he will not be back until early spring. And as I said, Calkins was very suspicious of this. And plus, he's probably pissed off realizing that he's not going to get rent for three months. So this only deepens Calkins' desire to find out where the hell Vandercook is. And he wastes no time. Calkins calls the police and tells them that he believes Beckwith may have murdered Vandercook. So the police, knowing of Beckwith's record and reputation, decide to go to Beckwith's shack and see what kind of information they could find out. So they get there, they open up the shack door, and our man of the hour, Oscar Beckwith, is nowhere to be found. That's right, folks. He split town. He's gone. And remember we said, you got the Catskill Mountains to the west, you got the Berkshire Mountains to the east, and you got the Hudson River flowing on by. So this guy could really, truly be anywhere at this point in time. So there's no sign of Beckwith, but inside they do find Simon Vandercook. Well, I should say parts of Simon Vandercook. Remember the pork rinds that Beckwith said he was cooking? when asked about the pungent smell in the air, it seems that when the police opened up that stove, they found a charred head, feet, arms, and finger bones. 
So if that's not disgusting enough for you, it was reported that bowels and intestines were found in a basket, as well as an arm and a leg in the corner of the shack. So it's at this point that the coroner rules that Beckwith did indeed murder Vandercook. Thanks, Captain Obvious. And to make matters worse, the reports of the cannibalism is what really propels this story into the stratosphere. The New York Times even reported on it. So now we have this murdering cannibal on the run. (laughs) And you could imagine the people in the area are probably just shitting bricks. But we come to find out that they had no reason to be. Because you're not going to believe where 72-year-old Oscar Beckwith ends up. It seems he made his way to Canada by escaping into the Berkshire Mountains and heading north. I mean, my guess would be that he hopped on a train and took off to Canada. So now you may be asking, how the hell did we come to find out that Beckwith was in Canada? Well, he had been at large for over three years. So at this point, he's 75 years old. I mean, this guy is just gritty, right? There's no holding this guy back. But he did make a fateful error. And that is when he was writing letters to his daughter. I mean, my question then becomes, who the hell would want to make a kid with Oscar Beckwith? But apparently someone did, because he did indeed have a daughter, who went by the name of Eunice Sparks of Berkshire County, Massachusetts. So, you know, this only adds to the mystery of Oscar Beckwith. It seems at one point or another that he was indeed a family man. So, as the story goes here, Beckwith had been sending letters to his daughter... And that's when we got to give it up to the police here. The Columbia County Sheriff's Department rolled up their sleeves and did some old-fashioned detective work. A detective by the name of Henry Hanner got crazy obsessed with this case. He began contacting Eunice Sparks, the daughter of Beckwith, going through the letters, getting the address, and he decides one day that enough's enough. He's going to take a train up to Canada, Toronto to be more specific, and find Beckwith. Not only that, he takes a local farmer with him, someone that had known Beckwith and could easily identify him because we're talking 1885 here. So there's no pictures of Beckwith, probably only drawings or sketches that people gave describing his appearance. So Hanner takes this local farmer with him to help him identify Beckwith. So they make their way to Toronto and from there, they had to head all the way up to northern Ontario. And that's when they do indeed locate Oscar Beckwith in the small logging town of South River. It's reported that Oscar was in complete shock and <laughs> he was shaking and whatnot, but he did comply and go down quietly. So they take him to the local jail there. About a month later, he's extradited back to New York State, where he is sent to the Columbia County Jail. So it's upon Beckwith's arrest that the story gets reignited. The New York Times runs another piece on it. So this is now starting to draw attention from all over the place, as we said. And that attention is only exacerbated by the upcoming trial, which began on November 16th, 1885, over three plus years since the murder of Simon Vandercook. Let's just say that (laughs) the trial did not go well for old Beckwith. It's during his trial that Beckwith makes the same claims that we talked about earlier on in the show. 
He said that he had a contractual agreement with Vandercook. Vandercook screwed him out of that deal. That led to them fighting. And as you can imagine, that led to them no longer being business partners. A lot of bad blood between them. Apparently, according to Beckwith, that fateful day that Vandercook came to visit Beckwith at his shack, it was Vandercook. According to Beckwith, mind you, it was Vandercook that was the aggressor. Apparently, he had a large piece of wood, I'm assuming a two-by-four, and he began to hit Beckwith over the head, causing him to bleed profusely. And then upon striking him, Vandercook then began to strangle him. It was at that point that Beckwith reached for a knife that he had nearby and slit Vandercook's throat from ear to ear. That is Beckwith's own account. So we now know that Beckwith did indeed kill Vandercook, but he's claiming self-defense, and Vandercook was not able to defend himself. So, barring any breaking news from beyond the grave, we certainly will never know the truth. But the main concern on Beckwith's mind was whether or not the jury was going to buy his story. Was this self-defense? And unfortunately for Beckwith, The jury did not see it that way, because in January of 1887, upon the completion of the trial, the jury found Oscar Beckwith guilty of the murder of Simon Vandercook. But the interesting thing here is that there was never a single mention of the cannibalism. So that led some to believe that that might have just been a made-up portion of the story as a way to get this case to garner more attention. And we all know, once a rumor starts, it begins to snowball, and it gets bigger and bigger and more grandiose until uh, it reaches new heights of unbelievability. So once Beckwith was found guilty, his lawyers immediately went to work and tried to pull the old insane plea, pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. So we went from using self-defense as a reason for the murder to now attempting to use the old not guilty by reason of insanity. And remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago on the Albert French's case. But unfortunately for Oscar Beckwith, the jury did not seem to believe that he was insane. They thought he was of right mind when he committed the murders and therefore upheld their verdict of guilty and sentenced Oscar Beckwith to death by hanging. Let's fast forward to February 28th, 1888. That is the evening before Oscar Beckwith's death sentence was to be carried out. It was around 9 p.m. that evening in which Oscar Beckwith received his last meal. And as the story goes, Oscar found himself enraged because the Columbia County Jail did not offer any gluten-free vegan options at the time. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, It seems that Oscar, for his last meal, ordered beef, ham, and potatoes. And I'm guessing that's a step up from munching on bowels and intestines like he did in years prior. So here we are the next morning on March 1st, 1888, the day the execution is carried out. It was at approximately 9.30 a.m. that the guards began to escort Beckwith from his cell inside the Columbia County Jail to the scaffold where his death sentence would be carried out. So at this point, they have a reverend from the church come and perform the ordinance of baptism. And yet again, Beckwith proclaimed his innocence. But 
Alas, to no avail. It was reported that Beckwith kissed a crucifix that he had around his neck and said the following, and I quote, Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And those were indeed the last words of Oscar Beckwith, because mere seconds later, the executioner carried out the hanging of the cannibal of Austerlitz. So that's it. That is the story of Oscar Beckwith. Now, before we wrap things up, I wanted to bring up an interesting point. Now, remember in the court documents, there was no mention at all of the cannibalism. So that brings into question, is this a story that was fabricated through the years? Or was Oscar Beckwith indeed a cannibal? Did he consume the body of Simon Vandercook? We may never know. And I say that just because even though they found the mutilated body of Vandercook in Beckwith's shack, but does that mean that he did try to consume the body? Or did he cut the body into pieces in order to hide the body of Simon Vandercook? That's one way to look at it. Remember, this took place in January, and there are some long, cold winters taking place up here in the Northeast. Couple that with the fact that Beckwith was living in the woods in an uninsulated shack. And we also have to include in that the fact that Beckwith was, from all accounts, pretty much destitute. And furthermore, remember we talked about the fact that Beckwith was arrested for stealing a horse or horses. Now, my question is, were the horses ever recovered? Or were they, too, turned into a three-course meal for Oscar Beckwith? We just don't know. So looking at all this, I'm going to conclude that, in my opinion, I do believe that Oscar Beckwith was no vegan. He was indeed a carnivorous cannibal. But anyway, drop me a line and let me know what you think. But before we go, I'd be remiss if I did not give credit where credit is due. And once again, my primary resource for this episode came from the book Hudson Valley Murder and Mayhem by Andrew Amelinks. And I think I mentioned it before, I picked up this book at CBS, and my God, I am getting some mileage out of it. Now, with all that said, let me give the rundown so I can get the hell out of here. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch with me on Instagram at the Between the Cracks podcast. If you'd like to become one of our lovely patrons, the link to that will be in the show notes. So without any further ado, I think I'm going to wish to find fine people out in podcast land the fondest. Oh. <laughs>